Good afternoon and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. We got a big headline today, folks. The headline is, the days of awe are upon us. It's that time every year when many of us, with Tuesday coming up, is the first day of Tishrei, the first day on the Jewish calendar for the year 5783. The Jewish New Year when the days of awe commence. Yamin Noraim. We dig deep in our souls as individuals, as a community, to figure why we're here on this planet, what we should do better, and earn the right to keep going. Well, there's someone who helps guide many of us in the community through that process, Rabbi Michael Farman, the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, who's been getting his congregation ready for Tishrei, for the days of awe, and he's here today to deal us into that process. Rabbi Farman on the guitar. Tishrei, the new month of Tishrei begins uh, this this uh, right after this weekend. In fact, on Sunday night. I'm sorry, I uh, said Tuesday. It's you, you, Sunday you, night. You, you, you jump to the second day uh, of the month. That's yeah. quite okay. Uh, and so it does begin on Sunday night, and Monday morning uh, is the the morning of the first day of the month of Tishrei. And this melody was uh, written by. Uh, an Israeli group, Navatehila and Yoel Sykes. Uh, and, and of course, an igun is a beautiful, beautiful way. Uh, it is one of the traditional Jewish ways of offering the melody without words. And it allows, I often talk to children in religious school about this, that it allows us to conjure up our own images, the ones that, uh, that are helpful to us. Uh, and perhaps not just the images, but especially the emotions, something that once we bring the language into it, um, becomes a little harder because then it limits it, defines it, it defines it more. The nigun gives you an opportunity to have a profound experience, and it often can be a profound experience, that is defined both by beauty of music that you're encountering uh, and by the mood it creates, but also by, by your internal state at that moment. So and just for people who don't know what a nigun is. Nigun it's in a Hebrew melody, just means a melody. But it's where you say yaydadai instead of you know the words. Uh, I think the yaydadai is, is really uh, a, 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 a um, I suppose in many ways, perhaps a Hasidic um, version and interpretation of this. And somehow that has entered the into the mainstream uh, with the Yadadais. But I think and I the, love the, the, the idea of a Nigun is just a melody. And the idea is to sing a melody that everybody can calmly sing together, often with their eyes closed, to start the process of something. Whether we're going to start a prayer service or just a gathering of people who are seeking something religiously. Uh, would you think that's fair to say? Uh, I love the imagery you're creating. I think that you're leaving out a whole bunch of Nigunim, which are very, very. Feisty rowdy and, and rowdy and, and finishing and, the song and, and, the words, and dancing and place. dancing and and, and totally all of this. Right. So so it doesn't necessarily just have to be contemplative. And I think that uh, this particular one with the upcoming Tishrei, that's the contemplative one. And uh, this melody will open has been opening for the last few years. Uh, the High Holy Service is a Temple Emmanuel. Um, it sounds much more beautiful. Uh, when a lot thank, of people are singing. Th- well, first of all, a lot of people singing. It is also led, uh, mostly led, in fact, by our cantorial soloists. 
uh, who are this phenomenal mother-daughter team. Uh, Who's that? La- Laurel Shader and Anna Zonderman. So they are... Well, the Zondermans, uh, they've been active uh, in that synagogue. Uh, yes, forever. they have. Yes, yeah. they have. And so it is a very yeah. much a tradition. Although this melody is newer, their voices uh, very much frame and define the High Holiday period for uh, for generations now of, of Temple Manuel. Well, I love that targets. role of Nigunim, how you use, and the Temple Manuel is known for being a very musical shul. Music plays an important part about people worship and, and come together, and about preparation. So that's what we're talking about today. We're preparing for the 10-day period, the Days of Awe, starting Sunday night, with and Jewish Days begin at night, with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It continues for 10 days that have a heightened, hmm. even though we go back to work after, after Tuesday night. Um, we lead up to Yom Kippur, where we're d- digging deep in our souls to figure out what we could have done better the last year, what we need to make right, where we're falling short. And for those leading up and then through those 10 days, we beat our breasts and talk about, you know, we have prayers about all the terrible things we've done. And then we try to figure how to find examples so we can say, yes, we've slandered. Yes, we've, you know, uh, ripped off people. And then try to promise to do better. So at the end of Yom Kippur, on during uh, Neila, they close the gates of the ark, metaphorically closing the gates of heaven to see you're asking for another year of life, promising to do better. Is that a fair way, Rabbi, of describing the uh, season? It's a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty good summary. Uh, I think there's a few really important messages um, within that language, uh, perhaps especially for people who are not familiar with our tradition, but also for, for, for members uh, of our communities as well, that you've used the plural we, and, um, and the really important message of this holiday is that, yes, indeed, individually, there are some of these sins that some of us have, um, have either engaged in or failed to prevent ourselves from. And I'm glad you say because I always try to figure out, like, I've never committed adultery. And Correct. every day we're beating our breasts saying we Cor- committed adultery. So Correct. I say, what's the metaphor Correct. here? So, so it's not so much about the metaphor, but it is about a message of a community, which is so especially heightened around the High Holidays. And that is to say, if one of us does something, it inevitably reflects not just on the individual, but also on the entire community. And so while we can, and we should, individually process our own actions, and we can say, all right, I did do this, how do I fix this? And you can hopefully with with real authority, say, well, I didn't do this, this, and this. I didn't engage in those, uh, in those things. Those were not my failings. But I think recognizing that as a, as a community and as a large, as a people, we cannot actually stand up and say, yeah, but that's not about us. That's about someone else. And widening this and taking this responsibility, we live in a very individualistic society. And, and it's not necessarily good or bad, um, People can argue about this politically, but I think there are moments when we all recognize the pandemic was a spectacular moment when we all recognize that irrespective of who we are and what we are and how well off or not well off we are, that we, when we suddenly all find ourselves in the same boat, what does that mean for us as a community, as a people, as a country, and as the world? Um, most of the time we're able to run away from those kind of messages and say, well, look, if I live a good life, if I li- live a moral life, if I stick to with, with what's, what I know is right, then I'm okay, right? And I think the High Holidays kind of bring this up and say, well, yes, but, or yes, and, uh, as I like to, as people remind me, I should always say, I shouldn't say yeah, no, but, uh, I should say yes, and. Um, this isn't always true. S- s- well, so was that, it was a 2 2 equals 7. No. That, that's true. That, that's true. You're, you're, I know what you mean, though. I know the general you're, point. You're Your right, outlook right, should be right. how to build on and find and, common And yeah. there is a place for us to really widen this conversation into a communal uh, feeling. The other thing that I, I want to um, say, this was, you framed it beautifully about the, the Yamim Noraim, the, the days of awe, these 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And there's a few things in there. One of them is that the 10 days are not actually for beginning to think about it. The 10 days are... The, the time to think about this is the month of Elul. Which leading, is the month before uh, the, the, month before now, the High Holidays. Yeah. And Slichot, these um, prayers of uh, asking forgiveness, 
begin to be recited by the Sephardi Jews for the entire month of Elul uh, uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, the Ashkenazi Jews begin Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah or a, a week before, uh, as sometimes is the case, depending on how quickly within the new week the, the Rosh Hashanah falls. And the idea is you're supposed to actually analyze your actions and you're supposed to fix this before you get to the new year. But I think the idea behind it, it's maybe cute, uh, that you sit there on Rosh Hashanah and you go through all these prayers and suddenly it conjures up some of the things, it brings up some of the things in your memory, it jocks them uh, a little, and you go, oh, you know what? I think I may have also forgotten this. Or, you know what? Personally, I may have addressed some of um, my wrongdoings, but I haven't actually considered it from the perspective of a community or, or a people or a, uh, or a country. So perhaps there is more for me Rebuild to do. Rebuild and go deeper. And then the 10 days are about your final chance to kind of run and, and fix it. Uh, I'm always talking to people about my favorite old cartoon, uh, which had the rabbi standing on the pulpit in front of the congregation and announcing... Uh, uh, repent now and avoid the Yom Kippur rush. <laughs> and and I, I always I always think about this, and I, I think it's such a such a clever way of saying no, no. That's the final. That's to fixing the stuff that you forgot about, that you have really started this before, and it's not asking forgiveness. It's actually going and following through and trying to fix this. If you have harmed someone. Financially, the halakha, the Jewish law says, you have to go and you have to fix it. If you have done something that caused someone uh, a financial or physical or some kind of a loss, first you have to make it whole. You have to make it right and then some. Then you can ask forgiveness from the person. So step one is the Elu month. I did that yesterday where I talked to a bunch of people I had kind of treated not nicely and tried to explain and go better. But you're saying there are all these levels of taking stock of where we've fallen short trying to make it right, and then digging deeper as the days of awe, Yamim Noreem, begin to really clear it out, correct the ledgers. So a couple of days before uh, the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, uh, repent now and avoid the Yom Kippur <laughs> rush. But the, uh, actually the other side of this message, uh, which you, you will have encountered in, uh, uh, in, in places, is reminding us that what really matters is not how we act between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, <laughs> but how we act between Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Right. That's really what yeah. this is about. It's, it's, not a, uh, it's not saying, oh, you know what, for the rest of the year, it doesn't matter. It is actually saying, Idafka does matter for the rest of the year. But these 10 days is just the intensity where we say, okay, we know you know. Uh, my favorite sign uh, at the, the Bishop's Farm uh, years ago was, we know that you know that we know that you ate. So please uh, <laughs> uh, give a Pay little, a little extra. So, uh, so, so I, I, I always think, you know, everybody understands what the message is. We all know that we're supposed to behave in a certain way. But by allocating this especially heightened time and bringing all of these liturgical melodies and themes and prayers, we are further pushed to say, okay, let me really dig a little deeper um, and, and consider things. So we're talking to Rabbi Michael Farman. We're talking about the days of awe, Yamim Noraim, which are kind of, sometimes it feels like all of our days these days are days of awe, certainly not just for Jewish people, but for the world. We Jews begin Sunday night with Rosh Hashanah, the month of Tishrei, uh, 10 days leading through Yom Kippur, where we take stock and try to do better, a process we all go through at different times. And Rabbi, Man, Rabbi Michael Farman of Temple Emanuel leads the community through that process. Before we move on, Rabbi Farman, I want to ask you a question that came to mind when you were so beautifully describing this process. There seems like there always is a tension between individual and collective guilt. And I think I was hearing you say, unless I was imposing my own views on it, that we're digging deep in our own souls for what we did wrong and try to write it, but we're also looking at ourselves as a community because the whole community is affected. Not that everybody steals, not that everybody lies, although they're kind of variation everybody. But that as a community, we do commit these sins and we need to do better as a community. Is it fair to say that in this process of Yamim Nuraim and in life in general, there is this continual tension there between individual culpability and work to do and collective? And is there also a danger? It's important that we have standards as a community, correct? That we say we don't want to commit these sins as a community. Is there also a danger of blaming a community? And I mean, the most obvious extreme case was the Holocaust, right? Where people said, you know, it's not true that the Jews brought the Holocaust on each other. It's not true that we didn't pray hard enough to God or 
or you know, be more upright so the Nazis wouldn't make lies about us and then murder six million of us. How do we resolve, maybe we can't resolve, how do we navigate that tension between communal and individual responsibility, guilt, and work, and communal individual responsibility and guilt? So, uh, powerful question. Um, and, uh, and not an easy one, but perhaps a simple one uh, in some ways. And that is to say, there is a rabbinic, uh, there's a rabbinic imagery. Um, there's an, uh, a comment that says, the Jewish people is like a, a mountain of walnuts. And when you grab one, or when one is disturbed, all the others will, will be affected. You cannot just take something out. It's, it's, not, it's not a Jenga where you can falls. just remove. Right? The, the entire pile is, it doesn't necessarily even mean I think it falls, but it is moved. Right? It, it cannot remain in itself. And so the recognition, it is not about saying, oh, uh, the blame is there. I think the, the I think the blame game is a, is a whole conversation altogether, and is a summary blaming of anyone for for anything or accusing even that that is we we know how terrible that is in every imaginable context. Jewish one, of course, as well, but not just Jewish. And in any context, that kind of a stereotyping and the and the mass lumping together of a group of people. Uh, but I think that recognizing that when something happens that affects one of us, it automatically, one way or another, affects, if not all of us, then most of us. Um, it, this is something that the Jewish people is very keenly aware of. And so, yeah, we, we, we kind of And think we also about can't this. dismiss, just because Jews didn't bring the Holocaust to each other, or the, you know, Tutsi in, in Rwanda, that doesn't mean there isn't some truth to it, right? So if we as a society, individually... Don't take care of the earth. If we pollute on an individual basis or an individual company owner does, or if we treat tenants badly in a community, if we own a lot of real estate and there, there gets to be a larger environment in which a lot of wrong uh, is going uh, on uh, and uh, injustice and people fight back against that uh, or the earth is hurt. So I think it is the reason I asked you that question is I agree that it, I agree there's a simplicity to how you can't blame everybody, but it uh, does seem like we do have to navigate that. I think that I would uh, I would say that um, I would steer clear of genocides uh, as as a metaphor <laughs> yes, as I a agree. metaphor for this kind of a conversation, mostly because um, there is absolutely no there absolutely no uh, possible reason um, that could somehow explain not even the justify but but really connect in oh yes your actions and then this. Uh, you know, genocides or something Let's take completely genocide different. Off the table. But but yeah. I think but I think that the responsibility, the communal responsibility for the stuff that goes on in our backyard, in our cities, in our country, in our world, with with uh, certainly with ecology and other things. Yeah, absolutely. That's you know uh, our individual actions impacted. Whether or not our individual actions can also offset that. That's a separate conversation, right? That I mean, you have to dig deeper but i think the acceptance of the fact that we all share this world um that's a healthy and sometimes difficult uh, thing for people to accept because we we are so programmed by the individualistic nature of our society and when i by the way when i say individualistic nature i'm not attacking this i think that it is it has a lot of benefits. Well, you came uh, from the collective uh, nightmare oh, yes. of the, from the Soviet <laughs> union so yes. <laughs> yeah, yes just I one am. more wrinkle into this of course um when I wrestle with this question, I then come to, we're never going to be perfect, right? I mean, I saw the idea of the Kundalini gradually repair the world. So, like, we're never going to have nobody in a community stealing. It's never going to stop being human nature that somebody tries to take advantage. And that maybe part of the process is just to move in the right direction, that our individual and collective actions will always fall short to some extent. And maybe part of what we're trying to do through this day's awe and all year round as Jews, as humans, is, is to try to just be a little better. When I, when I tell people why I daven every morning, I say, or be religious, it's not to think that I'll ever be better than somebody else, but that I'm trying to be less of a schmuck than I otherwise would be. Like, in other <laughs> words, the point is where we have the Yetzirah, but the Yetzirah Tov too, the good inclination and the bad, and that maybe the point of religion is to, and what we're doing with Days of Awe and Year Round, is to just try to be better, and in the end, really like pray that when we're, gone we left it a little better than we started so there's a story told about a hasidic master azusa from hanipal which i'm i'm sure you will have heard uh, before 
where he says, when I, when I leave this world and when I come before the heavenly judge, I will not, ask, I will not be asked, Zusia, why were you not Moses? <laughs> but I will be asked, why were you not Zusia? And I think that, I the, the, that. that nice. the depth yeah. of this is that, like you say, it's not whether I can be perfect or ideal, but can I be a better version of me then we all have tendencies to, right, we all have possibilities in the, in the world, cert- certainly in terms of the Jewish understanding of the freedom of choice. We all have a choice uh, to choose how we act in this world. And so if we engage in ways of tikkun, of some kind of a bettering that helps us. But I think that at the same time, within the Jewish understanding of the world and within the biblical understanding, there's a built-in understanding that the perfection is not something you achieve it's something that you strive aim for, for you yeah. aim for the torah doesn't say there will come a point um, where there will be no poor people or there will be no this and not that it says there shouldn't be among you and then immediately it says when there is one here's what you do here's how you address it here are the, the, the um, safeguards within your community of how you ensure that the most vulnerable are protected, that, uh, that there is enough food for, for people. And, and you, I always, I, I'm always struck by, this, by these texts because they do not lie to us. They do not imagine the world which is just so perfect by a wave of a magic wand that nothing... It says, no, there will always be. The difference... I think with the teaching, uh, uh, the, the, the Torah teaching is that it says, but you, the human, in partnership with God, you have a responsibility for then addressing it so that it doesn't become an absolute disaster. That it is something that you have, there is, we know this, in the world today, well, today is a little complicated with uh, with the war in Ukraine and the flow of food. There's there's a there's a lot of uh, additional complexity, but by and large, for quite some time, uh, we know that there is enough food being produced in the world to make sure that no one is hungry, and yet we have um, terrible disbalance between different parts of the world where food is either so scar- scarce that it is um, a, a teetering on on the on the uh, on the verge of uh, complete disaster uh, many times with um, with hunger, and even within the the societies that absolutely have access to food, it depends on your zip code and uh, and where you are. So, is there enough food for everyone? Yes. Can we do better as humans, making sure that that food reaches everyone? Absolutely. When I think about that process, so when I think about the, what we're doing with the search for leading up to Rosh Hashanah and then the, the days of awe, when I think about what we do around whatever religious tradition, when I think about those texts and those rituals, I think of them as the result of thousands of years of collective fact-finding and soul-searching about how does the world work, how should it work, how can we make it work better, and that when we're repeating these prayers or doing these rituals, muckle me, you know, forgive me for what I did, try to do better, is that we're just trying to build on that wisdom, and that's where I see the communal role. Because one thing I was thinking when I was listening to you, Rabbi Farman, is some of the stuff you're talking about, we go through this time of year, year-round, we do alone, you know, in a dark room at night or in the daily prayer. But a lot of it we do collectively in that same balance of what can the individual do with good heart, what are we as a collective. Why during Yamim Noraim is it so important for us to be together? I mean, all those hours standing in shul, doing the same prayers, beating our breasts, you know, doing the shofar. Why is it important to be in a room of at least 10 people when doing that? Wow. Um, that's a great question. I think that... Um I, I think in many ways, uh, look, it, it's not any more important around these Yamim uh, Noraim, these uh, holy days, than it is at any other time. And in terms of popularly um, and on a human level, right, the synagogues will be, uh, w- will be flooded with people who don't come for communal prayer on a daily or even weekly basis. That the high holidays uh, historically the one time have, a year when you have twenty ha- times much have, yeah. right uh, they t- twice uh, twice a year when uh, suddenly and I'm I'm very fortunate Temple Emanuel the the building that we are currently 
in that we, we have built in 1991 has these uh, collapsing partitions that you can just open up uh, and, the and re re remove too. the partitions between the sanctuary and the social hall uh, and you can accommodate the, the entire community that shows up. Um, but I think that there is a sense within, you shouldn't maybe ask the rabbi, I think maybe you should ask the congregants, why is it that um, they they all rush on these specific dates? What is it that, that makes it this holiness of this day know uh, that you really have to be there? Uh, on Rosh Hashanah, perhaps the sound of the shofar is a, is a big draw, and we'll talk about that uh, later today. Um, but I think the, the halachic idea, and you mentioned the, the minyan, the ten, uh, ten people, a quorum of ten people or more, there is, it's very clear, Maimonides uh, in the 12th century writes about this, and he, and he says, if you arrive into the town, your first responsibility is to go and find a religious quorum. Uh, but it is, he's talking about something that is, is right from the Mishnah. So we're talking about laws that are about 2,000 years old, which simultaneously say that your individual prayer is absolutely more than enough. But you cannot say, I'll just sit here quietly in my room and I'm going to pray. That if you want to engage in, in, the, in the prayer, in addition to that individual one, there is a certain added value to coming together as a community, and that's what maintains. That has been the Jewish uh, experience and the Jewish answer. It is not at all invalidating the uh, the individual prayer, or for that matter, prayer in a different well, language. Does this come back to what we've been talking about throughout this hour about both aspects of religious pursuit being so essential? The individual level, this looking inward, and being a community. I mean, one micro reason, like that we'll go, we try to make it the daily minion, is that you need the 10 so that a mourner, someone who's just lost someone or marking the anniversary of death of a parent or a loved one, other loved one, can't say the prayer for the dead unless, which they're supposed to do, unless 10 people are there. And I love the beauty of that because I think what it's saying is that we're helping the person be stronger as a community. That, you know, you, what, you know the, the mortar's cottage, the prayer you say doesn't mention death. And, you know, it mentions trying to say words you might not believe when you lost someone, which is that you believe in God or that everything's okay. It doesn't feel that way unless you're parent. But if your 10 people are there, it helps you get out of your house, face the world, right? Is this part of what this collective process is that we, the world's a daunting place. There's a lot of awe for better or worse, not just in the days of awe. And that we need to come together as a community in that joint pursuit of meaning and purpose and truth to make it a little better. I think that the individual, uh, individualistic world um, offers us a lot of benefits um, that and a lot of comforts. Liberty and, and and perhaps in some ways, we are living in pretty unprecedented historically pretty unprecedented times when you can enjoy this very high level of of life. If you if you wanted to have access to certain things not that long ago, you absolutely had to be in the cities. Otherwise, you had no access to all kinds of things. Entertainment uh, is definitely one of them. Today, we are living in, the, in an unprecedented reality where you can live just about anywhere. You can work remotely. You can, you can, do, you can entertain yourself without end, uh, as we have seen uh, with the pandemic. But I think that the value of a community, of being seen by other people at the times that are the height of your experience, who do you share your joy with? At the time of the lows of your experience, who do you share your pain with? Who is there to witness and to be with you as you go through these emotions? And you know what? It's actually not easy. I have so many times spoken to people who say, you know, I don't quite, I'm not going to go to a shiva, you know, somebody passed away or to, to a funeral because I don't really know the people that well. I know a part of my community, but I don't know them that well. So what am I going to tell them? I'm going to stay away. And I, and I often, if people, I, I know that's what people are thinking, but when they share it with me, I say to them, that's Davka, why you have to go? Because it is not about, oh, you're my friend. We are friends. You show up for me. I show up for you. Yeah, of course we do that. That's a very human thing. But the communal answer is that 
we widen it. We go beyond the friendship. We show up for people who are just part of our community, and I've seen you, I've seen part, you part, part of our society. Yeah. And, and that is uh, being seen is what we, I think, are, are really missing. And by the way, today, with the world where we all are hyper-connected, but on our own terms, we see a lot of this. Uh, I hear so many, uh, so many people are loving the fact that they can work remotely and never want to, to do the, uh, the commute again. And others that are saying this is disastrous for, certain, uh, for, for some of us, for the extroverts, or for certain groups within, uh, within our communities um, who, who don't develop certain skills of interaction with each other and who are not seen, and that's also not good. Rabbi Michael Farman, Rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, Please, a, a crucial role in our community right now as we enter, prepare to enter the days of awe, the Abim Noraim with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, beginning at the month of Tishrei on Sunday night, week Tuesday night, through Yom Kippur at the end of the 10-day period. So this is crunch time, am I correct? Rabbis like yourself, the community, need stuff from you that's important all year. I've seen you at a home shiver where you do that kind of wonderful service for people and bring people together. And But is your workload much higher and are people needing more from you spiritually and materially or just of your time now at this time nah, of year? It's all so easy. I gladly <laughs> take my time away uh, and yeah. I say... And you have to give a long sermon too, right? Like well, hour, yeah, know. quite quite, quite a few of those. Uh, look, it, <laughs> it is, of course, uh, intense time. It often coincides with a new school year and, uh, and, and the new re reawakening of the community and uh, and everyone beginning to come together more so it is indeed intense uh, I find that some people, some of my colleagues I think are, are born, I envy them they're born knowing how many sermons and which sermons they're going to deliver me, I, I struggle with it all year, all throughout the year and, uh, and make notes and then I use, uh, like many of my colleagues use every excuse to procrastinate uh, around this time so paul invites me to his show to talk about high holidays and i say there's another hour i, I don't feel have like, to yeah, see, sit feel, and fret over I just tell all you guys chill out you guys are great i love your two minute sermons as much as your 30 and that like even though that's the one year when everyone's there and they don't pray as much so they want you to talk a long time you got your chance i just feel like saying it's going to be okay You've, you're where you are because you're like you're just talking now and riffing you're saying so many meaningful things to people I always wonder why there's so much pressure. Because not you; it's every rabbi I know. Why is there so much pressure? Like you well, giving a doctoral uh, dissertation. I I think that the the answer is it's that sense that look the regulars in the community who who show up and engage and have essentially uh, often one sided, but sometimes it's a dialogue a conversation with the with their leader of the community, with the spiritual re- leader, with their rabbi. Um, um, especially in the smaller community where I get to talk every week. And so people get to know my, uh, my way of looking at things and what, what triggers me and what bothers me and how I look at the Torah. And these conversations often then continue the next morning in the Torah study. And it's, a, it's an ongoing experience and conversation. But here I get, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 people on a, on a Friday night that, uh, that uh, engage with certain uh, regularity in this. On the Rosh Hashanah morning, I get 350 uh, who are there, whose sensitivity is heightened uh, by, by this experience of a high holiday of litur- litur- um, liturgy, and who need to walk away uplifted, inspired, challenged, disturbed perhaps even, maybe with a little bit of hope, and, and so that, that responsibility, I think, weighs heavily. Um, uh, on, you feel on like me. you got to deliver in a different way for more people. Um, I, I, I want I want people to have both the ones for whom this is a a part of an ongoing weekly or um, uh, or, or similar uh, ritual, regular ritual, as well as those for whom this is a not a one off, but you know one of those very special moments, and that they don't walk away. And, and it has to be a combination of things. As you, you mentioned in the beginning, Temple Emmanuel is incredibly musical. But, you know, if it's just about the music, and if you didn't also get a liturgical uh, boost to this, then, then perhaps something... You, this is not a concert, right? If you want to be uplifted by music, just go and listen to your favorite piece uh, at, a, at a, a symphony hall or someplace else. So, no, this is something more, and this combination. And the third leg is, uh, is this. 
at Temple Emmanuel, um, one of the one of the additional pieces is when we start talking about things that go beyond us and our community. For I can't remember, 29 years now, we are running a, a food drive, and so. A member of the community is going up. Uh, Will Sherman has been doing this for decades. He goes up and he talks about the need and why we we we, we collect literally tons of food. Um, yeah, our show we do that and, too. And so with it's the, a very yeah. powerful thing, reminding us. Then on Yom Kippur, as as uh, we we uh, as part of our appeal, we collect uh, money. We identify certain charities that we will be supporting this year, and and we say, okay, this is again not just me individually. Everyone gets to think, oh, was I charitable enough this year? But the idea is, we as a community, here's the power that we can have if we pull our resources together for doing the good that we collectively also feel responsible for. It's a y very powerful yes, yes part. And. Yes, and. <laughs> as a rabbi, you have a pastoral role. Do more people knock on your door or call an email and say, I need to talk to you? Is this time of year bring out more personal challenges for people where they're looking for guidance from the rabbi? It's a great question. Um, I think that um, I don't know. It, it, I don't know if it's fair to generalize. Uh, you know, we started talking about generalizations as as not a very good thing to begin with. But I find that people often find it very hard to communicate the fact that they need support. There are some who can. Uh, I do have congregants who gently let me know that they that they need help. Um, or even that they have ended up in the hospital. And more often than not, uh, they don't. And so I find out, which is one of the reasons, you know, the, this ongoing conversation about the, the social media and things like Facebook and is it good or bad, uh, on, more, on many more than one occasion have I seen the situation where the congregants would not necessarily talk, choose to talk to me or anyone really in person because they were going through some profoundly difficult things, illness and, and other things. But they felt the responsibility, so so they were choosing to do this on their own terms, and they would share certain things uh, publicly on on social media, or at least with their friends, which allowed me to then offer the pastoral support where where it was needed, um, without the person coming and saying, "I need help." Gotcha. Um, so is it is it more? I suspect so. There are certain cycles. Uh, they certainly tend to. Um, and I don't know whether they're connected to certain times of year. Uh, it just feels uh, that in the community, there is suddenly a period when there was a lot of loss in the community. Just sort of, and my, my, my Yurtzeit list, the 11-month list, gets unbelievably long uh, that, that I read on Shabbat. And then it contracts. And, it, and I don't, it's just a matter of the time. Um, this summer, it seemed like a lot of people were, were having health issues and, and just, just a, an, uh, felt like an explosion of this. So, so the, the pastoral demand was higher. I don't know if necessarily high holidays. I feel like people are staying away and they're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm just going to show up and I'll deal with all of whatever it is uh, in, in, in the services and during the celebration. Rabbi Michael Farber, Temple Emanuel here on Dateline New Haven, WNHH FM 103.5, live stream to newhavenevent.org. Talking about the days of awe, we're entering Yamin Noraim, Rosh Hashanah, come Sunday night, through 10 days through Yom Kippur. You have a, we talked, Rabbi Farman, how you, you work hard on a message for each year about days of awe. Is there any specific message this year that you're working on that we need to be thinking about, about awe, whether the beauty and majesty of our world or the awe, not inspiring, but awe-inducing challenges in our world today? You know, um, there is a, a popular belief that most of the people who engage in regular preaching of any kind, whether rabbis or, or ministers, only really have a few sermons that we deliver. That, uh, that the stories change, that the way that the homilies change, but the sermon itself, uh, there's a very small number of sermons that we deliver every year. And... Um, while this is a somewhat humorous uh, reference, uh, I've come to recognize... Um, well, it's in, like in, saying in fiction there are only a few plots. Uh, right. Uh, mm -hmm. That I've come... Uh, in, and, and I think that that message depends on us individually, I think. Uh, it depends on communities that we serve. Uh, and uh, one, of my, one of my favorite jokes is the new rabbi arrives, in, uh, arrives into town 
and he delivers a sermon and everybody loves it. And then the next uh, Shabbat, he goes up on the bima and he delivers exactly the same sermon word for word. And the community is shocked and they, they kind of go to speak to the president and say, uh, what was this? And the president says, I, I, I don't know. I think maybe a fluke, maybe he was jet lagged. I don't know. Let's, let's wait and see. So the next Shabbat, the rabbi goes up on the bima and he delivers exactly the same sermon word for word. So at this point, it's very clear that something's going on. So the president approaches the rabbi and says, Rabbi, your sermon was exquisite. It was spectacular. But, you know, you delivered it once. <laughs> uh, like, and, and you really don't need to deliver. To which the rabbi says, have you started fixing what I talked about in the sermon. <laughs> and he says, no, then I will keep delivering it until you do. So, so I think that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of what is it that we talk about and why. The, I'm not just saying these things for the sake of saying them or looking for new ways of present the same message. I think it's just what, what keeps us important. To me, uh, the message of community, as you probably even heard in our conversation today, and this uh, something that is so odd and so weird that we're going against the grain, that we are looking at the world which says, you as an individual is what it's all about. And we say, yes, and you have to, you must figure out how to be a part of a community. And what that means these cannot be just mere words. Uh, in fact, I, I find that the word community is the one that is so often misused. Maybe other words too. This one just triggers me. That people talk about community without, I think, thinking through what exactly does that mean? What does that mean when you say my community? Does that mean that this is a place where you show up? That somehow, and you show up in good and in, in tough and in, and in difficult. Did you cook a meal for someone? Not because you like them, but because they need it. Um, I have, um, earlier this year, um, uh, I have um, gone twice, in fact, to volunteer with Ukrainian refugees. As you know, I speak Russian, I understand Ukrainian. And so I have traveled once to Poland and once to Spain and spent uh, a week each time uh, volunteering with, with Ukrainian refugees. And people have asked me, friends have asked me, uh, are they all Jewish? And I said, some of them are most of them not um, and and they were just being cared for by these structures established by Jewish community in the in, in Poland it was the JDC, the Jewish distribution committee and uh, in Spain it was actually a, a reform congregation there but Shalom uh, in Barcelona that was organizing all these things and I came to help them out and so the the answer is we don't help because they're Jewish we help because we are Jewish mm. um, what is what is driving us and how do we engage? And then the message that you're, you're asking what I'm going to talk about, I am going to talk about the fact that what was striking to me was that these refugees were sharing with me how coming from the uber-individualistic post-Soviet society, they were struck by the fact that they were many of them were able to find strength in supporting each other and forming community with these other strangers who have found themselves in unthinkable situation. Um, and, and every time they said this to me, uh, more than once, I said, oh my God, that's what I do for a living. I so believe in this. So hearing it from them, this, this power of a community where you, you show up for each other and you really support each other as the, the only way to make it through essentially hell um, mm -hmm. is, is a very powerful Message. And I can't think of anyone that I, I know of who would be better to address this issue on the days of awe or to go help people than Rabbi Michael Farman. You grew up in the former Soviet Union in, I'm going to butcher this, Vitebsk. You did good. Belarus, which used to be part of the Soviet Union. You left there, I believe, was as a late teenager? Something like that, yes. And then you became a rabbi, and you, so you have the roots in the Soviet Union. You're watching Ukrainian war. Overall, you made a very beautiful point here about the power of community to get us through hell and a broader community. What, what's your take on the war in Ukraine and what it means for us now in a period of awe? Are we in days of awe because of this war? Well, I think um, it's important to acknowledge that for people who have been directly impacted by this war, they have been in the days of awe for seven months now. Uh, it's a never-ending um, tragedy and, and fear. It is profoundly disturbing um, to to everything that we know and hold dear. Um, uh, not the first place where the war 
has broken out. This particular one hits very close to home, partially because I have friends um, and community that, that I have been part of and that I've served before and that I'm still connected to. What community is that? Uh, in Kiev, in, in Ukraine. Um, I've lived in Kiev for, for about a year and a half. So, uh, you know, seeing the skyline of, of one of your homes, of one of your home cities on CNN with bombs falling is not a, a, not a comforting uh, look, I, uh, I can assure you. But recognizing the unbelievable suffering, um, both of people who have been directly impacted by horrendous things and hiding out in bomb shelters, and, uh, and it, but also the entire country, the entire society that is, you don't know where, where it's going to fall next and, and what is going to be the next step and whether there is even uh, a resolution that can come soon. People are remaining very optimistic. I think one of the most difficult things, uh, well, there were lots of difficult conversations, obviously, with the refugees. Uh, there was, um, in, in April, when I was in Poland, a lot of people were saying, look, this is going to be over soon, and we're just waiting to go home. We can't wait to go home, rejoin our families. Men couldn't leave the country often, you know, so, so some were fighting, some were just waiting it out, and, and so... Uh, people saying we cannot wait to go home. And then every now and again, somebody would be saying, look, we were originally from Donetsk and Lugansk and, uh, and other places. We've spent the last eight years building a new life for ourselves in another part of Ukraine. And now that this had st started, we back then in 2014, we were also saying to ourselves, this will be over soon. Now we know uh, it won't be over soon. Uh, we actually have to accept. And, and they were saying it very apologetically they were saying look we're not trying to dampen anybody else's spirits here they were very sheepish about this but they were saying for us personally we've had to accept this the permanence of this overwhelming tragedy even if something can be fixed uh, and if something can be done it's time for us to figure out a way to to move on and somehow rebuild our lives elsewhere which is devastating of course we have a michael farman i wish we had another hour <laughs> I could talk. This, uh, we're in the month, in this month leading up to Sunday night's first night of Tishrei in Rosh Hashanah. We've been hearing the shofar every day, the ram's horn, which then gets blown at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur unless it's on a Saturday. Why do we blow the shofar every time at this point of year? Well, uh, the shofar and those those watching this, uh, I, I brought my shofar with me. The shofar is an ancient musical instrument. Um, it is made uh, out of the, the either a ram's horn or, as as mine, is from some kind of a wild goat. Um, oh, really? Uh, I yeah, I think so. I, I'm sure goats. it has. I'm sure it has a name. Uh, I'm just uh, <laughs> not very good with names of uh, of different animals and plants. Uh, that's the, the my weakness for sure. And so, no animals are harmed. Uh, they they shed these uh, these horns oh. uh, once a year, and That's you know nice. they grow new ones and, and drop them off. They're sort of like nails. Okay, uh, here's and, the go the music factory. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> but they uh, but they are uh, an ancient musical instrument, uh, biblically described ma many times. Uh, in addition to the trumpets that were made uh, out of uh, metal, um, some, somehow producing sound. This was a very um, ancient way of communicating about disaster, about gathering, about other things. Um, but also, it has such a profoundly visceral sound that, that just it does. affects us. There, nothing, it does. nothing else sounds like this. This guy named Jade Arshul, who does a long soul flow. I feel like I'm listening to like Coltrane on the Bema. It's a, it it's a, right it's a very powerful, yeah. very powerful sound. And, um, and it, there is a set of, of uh, sounds that are prescribed, you know, Jewish halakha goes through seven, everything. Yeah. So, so the and 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 I think like with everything else, um, there is a deeper meaning to these sounds. The first sound that kiyah uh, calls us to awaken. It calls us uh, to pay attention. Um, and it is indeed. Uh, I actually I blew the shofar uh, yesterday uh, at religious school during the service for kids. And every time I blew the sound, I saw some of the kids just jump in their seats uh, because it is just so visceral right this reaction the second sound to to wake up to pay attention to the world around us the second set is three broken sounds shvarim it actually comes from the word hebrew word lishbor is to break so shvarim is broken and there is a certain acknowledgement that the world around us we need to wake up and look the world around us is broken we ourselves perhaps are broken some at this time of year others 
just we we are our society our community our world the war in in ukraine or many other wars that that go on that we are broken and then the next sound is through ah it's a series of these rapid blasts um a minimum of nine being alachic um but maybe more that call us to action that they say when you have woken up when you open your eyes when you have observed the brokenness of the world around you, both in the small circle around you and in the larger world, the next thing is you have to call yourself and others to action. And then comes the Tkiyak Dola, this very long, long protracted long blast that, um, that brings a sense of wholeness, perhaps completion, perhaps also a little bit of peace, an internal peace, um, I, I hope. And so that's the cycle, right? We go with the tkiyah, awaken, shvarim, pay attention to the brokenness. Through ah, you cannot just, because if you just pay attention to brokenness, you will climb into a corner, assume the fetal position and say, ah, I, I, you know, wake me up when this is over. But that's, you can't engage with the world. Individually on some occasions, yes, that's also an appropriate response, but as a, as a people, as a community, that's not our response. Our response is to call ourselves to action and to work for that. That's beautiful. All right. Well, we're back by Michael Farm and Manuel. Thank you so much for coming on Dateline New Haven today. Get us ready for the days of awe. A thank you to Nora Grace Flood and the controls here. At, um, before we leave, would you rather, rather than taking it out with the Afro-Semitic experience, I was wondering if we could take it out with Rabbi Michael Farman blowing the shofar to call us to the brokenness and to peace. And this is the Afro Semic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, all weekend, and all year long, 5783 and beyond, on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>